The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. You seem unconcerned. If I understand correctly, the stakes of the upcoming votes are significant. What exactly are you doing? I'm seeming unconcerned. I cannot think of a better way to aid Captain Hornigold's cause than to appear panicked about it. No, that would be my job, I suppose. What were the numbers of the last count? So you have at least a half dozen votes over Captain Hornigold at the moment? That isn't nearly enough. He's a desperate man. Even with a minority faction, he might still move on vain. In which case, the girl dies. I need him to lose so convincingly that no sane man would follow him two yards up that beach. A margin of 20 would help matters. Don't stop moving until you have it. Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, November 3rd, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. As we head into our final broadcast before the upcoming American election next week, I thought I'd take this opportunity not to focus so much on the election itself, although we'll certainly be looking at it, as on one particular issue in this election, at least that's what I'll be doing, and that is socialized health care, coined as Obamacare in the United States. It's really, Obama don't care about anything but votes, Robert. <laughs> Speaking as a Canadian who lives in the heart of socialized health care country, I have a warning for our American friends Dump Obamacare the first chance you get. There may be no greater domestic issue facing your country. And what about you, Robert? What do you got on tap for today? Well, Bob, on the last half of the show, I'll be deconstructing Michael Moore's take on why Trump will win the election next week. And I'll be taking a look into possibly President Trump's first five score days in office his Gettysburg Address. But before we get into the show, I'd like to remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5130 kilohertz, and on channel 292 6070 kilohertz, which is broadcasting in Germany. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, where you can access all of our past broadcasts. Bob? I'm sure I have a great many policy disagreements with Donald Trump, and I'm sure we'll be spending a lot of time disagreeing with him after, if he, should he become president. But on one issue, Donald has it just right, and that issue has come to be affectionately called Obamacare. As a consequence of Trump's criticism of the Canadian health care system, quote, it's a disaster, <laughs> end quote, during the presidential debates and elsewhere, a great many Canadians have been somewhat upset with Trump because they simply don't see it that way. As a Canadian, again, who's living in the heart of socialized health care country, I would caution our American friends to the South to take heed of Canada's experience with our own version of, quote, unquote, Obamacare. There simply is no way to convey in the brief time we have each week to ever paint the big picture of just how enormous the problem of state-forced and enforced health care insurance actually is. There's a lot of confusion 
about state health care, and with good reason, because there are so many conflicting experiences, accounts, and perspectives on what ails our health care system, if anything at all. So I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to add to the confusion <laughs> by sharing with our listeners some samples of what we've been reading in the pages of our daily newspaper in London, Ontario, the London Free Press. Now, I live in London, which prides itself as being one of the world's greatest medical centers, and in many respects, it is. Yet at the same time, we have on past broadcasts shared with our listeners the newspaper reports of patients left unattended for days on the floor of our emergency rooms, while wait times for emergency treatment have skyrocketed. Here in Ontario, our healthcare service is a single-payer system, the single-payer being the Ontario provincial government. And all Ontarians are entitled to receiving necessary health care at the expense of the province. Here are some very recent samples added to my newspaper clipping box full of the same kinds of stories about what Americans will come to discover may become their new normal in health care should Obamacare continue unabated as it is today. Now all of these samples are simply taken from the letters to the editor section of the London Free Press over the last month or two. And I just wanted to give you a small sample of what people are writing. This is from September 22nd, heading older, comma, in pain, comma, forgotten, written by Jean C. of London. And she writes, Regarding the article, Injured Workers Avoid Wait Lists for Surgery, which was another story about how some people are getting past the waiting lines, Jumping right? the queue, yeah. Yeah. She goes, I am nine months into a wait for a knee replacement. I read that in certain places in Canada, if you're a working person, you can expedite your surgery. I'm 77 years old and retired, so I wait. I've lived in Canada all my life and have paid taxes and contributed to society. I am now a throwaway citizen. I just don't matter to Canada anymore, so I wait and wait for relief for a life of pain. Our health care system is a disgrace now, and I read that this happens. If I was not depressed before, I certainly am now. Is there any relief for people like me? No, it just gets worse for us. Does anybody care? I think not. And then there was another one from Dale M. of Ingersoll. Patients deserve a break, he writes. And he writes, I'm on the list at Strathroy General for a total hip replacement and was told it would be 12 to 18 months before surgery. Such fun. I have to walk with a cane, suffer constant pain, and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm only 62 years old, and I still believe I have a few more years left in this world. I would love to be pain-free. Come on, Ontario, give us a break. What's wrong with this? What's wrong? <laughs> What's wrong is that he is forbidden by law, by the state, oh, well. to be able to go to his doctor and say, here's $30,000 on my visa or whatever, and uh, yeah, please give me a new that? hip. Does he want to do that, or was he, is he just expecting... Oh, he, he may not want to, right? But the point is that Donald Trump is absolutely correct when he says that people of means, if they want um, mm -hmm. surgery or treatment right away, they just go down to Detroit or wherever in the United States and get it, because they can pay for it down there. We're forbidden to pay for it. You got it. And then there's Waiting and Worthless, October 8th, letter to the Free Press by Gene C., now, she wrote earlier, too, she, and, and apparently things had happened in the month between the two letters. She says, walk half a day in my shoes, those who would make the decisions about wait times. You will be screaming for relief in a couple of hours. I have been waiting now for more than nine months with no end in sight, although I was told nine to twelve months. I have no quality of life. Every step with a walker, 
must be measured and considered. I need knee replacement. I have pain and I have a deformity caused by the knee problem. My surgeon assures me all this can be fixed with a replacement. My husband has to do just about everything on our one-floor condo because I have balance issues and pain. I am 77 and have lived and worked in Canada my whole life. I am now worth nothing, it seems, she writes. Why? This is not the Canada I love, she concludes. And then this one from Lorraine W. It's probably the Canada she voted for, though. This is the irony of it all, which we'll be getting to. (laughs) But these are the unexpected consequences that people get when they vote for... Whenever you vote for something for nothing, you're going to get nothing for something in the end. But it might not be the same person who voted. Somebody else might get stuck with the bill. Heartbroken by poor care, writes Lorraine W. of London on October 8th. Jonathan Scher's article, Hip Hip Delay, (laughs) October 1st, brought tears to my eyes. Ten years ago, I moved to Texas from Ontario to be near my grandchildren. I worked as a nurse for a large health insurance company. I saw firsthand the way patients had to fight their insurance carrier for coverage of necessary procedures and drugs. It seemed terrible to me, and I would often tell my co-workers and friends how much better Canada's system is. I moved back to Ontario this July and am heartbroken that our health system has deteriorated so far in such a short time. Having been the recipient of a bilateral knee replacement in Dallas, Texas, I can't imagine being in that kind of pain for longer than I was. Imagine feeling as though someone took a hammer to your knees every morning. From diagnosis to surgery, my wait time was one month. Medicare covered everything, even physiotherapy. Now I read that waiting times in parts of Ontario exceed a year. We treat animals better. What's being done with all the tax money being collected at every turn? Is there any hope of reviving what was once a wonderful health care system only 10 short years ago? Spineless System is a headline of the letter written by Marion H., also of London, October 13th. Regarding the article, Long Painful Weights Slammed, I have a similar story. In the fall of 2014, my mother was referred to the spinal clinic in London. By June of 2015, having heard nothing, her doctor explained that the spine clinic does triage every two weeks, and she was at the bottom of the list. Her doctor was able to find a surgeon in Scarborough who would take her case. It was less than optimal, but we agreed because she was unable to walk and in constant pain. We saw the surgeon in November 2015 and had surgery in June 2016. Two weeks before the surgery, the spine clinic called to offer an appointment in June 2017, just for a referral. Had she not been in Scarborough, she'd be looking at 2018 or 2019 for surgery in London. That would be four years after the original referral. How can this be acceptable in Ontario? Isn't that stunning, Robert? What they're defining is what um, during the war people called rationing. Yes. Now here's one that's a little different. Canada's care the best, writes Kenneth E. of Leamington. As a Canadian who's experienced the finest health care in the world, I'm pained by Americans like Donald Trump, who know little of our system, calling it a disaster. In 2014, while vacationing in northern Ontario, I suffered the pains of an obvious heart attack. Rushed to a small hospital in Kenora, I was stabilized and then flown to Thunder Bay, which has one of the finest mega-hospitals in the world. Within 13 hours, they had stents in place, and I felt as if I could run a marathon, all at no cost to me or my family. Does our healthcare system have problems? Yes. There are waiting lines for minor issues, but emergencies, as in my case, are handled immediately. 
Because it's free, the system gets overburdened by minor problems. A small charge might help in those wait times. I've never heard any Canadian say we should get rid of our health care system. End quote. Well, you know, I'll give you a little anecdote of my own, Bob. Mm-hmm. I went into the hospital emergency room once because I had suffered some major heartburn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, I didn't know it was heartburn. No, no. It was just a constant chest pain throughout the entire day, and I was a little worried, so I went into this waiting room where there was about 20 people sitting there patiently waiting in the queue to be uh, looked at. I go in to the uh, clerk, and, uh, and she says, what's the problem? I put my hand to my chest, and she said, come with me. Yes. And I jumped the queue, and I got treated really well. And the thing is that, yes, in an emergency situation where you could probably die, I think you're going to get triaged, put to the head of the line, and treated well by good doctors. So I suppose when people hear these stories, they must be wondering, what accounts for the extreme you know, discrepancy between those who say the system is great and those who think it's terrible? Well, first, there's personal experience. Those who gave the system a good rating got good, timely service. Those who did not give the system a good rating did not receive timely service. Second, sometimes it's apples and oranges. There's a huge difference between the personal experience of any given individual within a given service provided and the economics and laws, laws of economics, that will eventually undo that system or change it to the point where it is unrecognizable from what it is today. Third, our healthcare system is really a Ponzi scheme, transferring the wealth of future generations to our consumer needs today. If you get in early enough, you'll be a winner. If you get sucked in too late to the scheme, you'll be a loser. Fourth, it's immoral and unnecessary to prohibit private insurance and private health care providers from exercising their fundamental freedoms in the name of equal universal access. And in Ontario, socialized medicine was originally sold to the voters as an insurance plan guaranteed to cover everyone, irrespective of pre-existing conditions or financial income. However, there was a monthly premium. I don't know if you were around long enough for that. Were oh, you? Yes, yeah. certainly. And, and the last one, I think, was in the $30 per month range and paying the premium was usually done quarterly, and was necessary to qualify. And finally, of course, how do you handle people who are uninsurable? I think, actually, Trump had the right answer on that. He called for block funding, uh, separate funding. This is basically no longer a health insurance plan, but a welfare plan, which is more the proper place to put that kind of thing, where you can direct the help to the people who need it and not force everybody to buy the same kind of insurance, People forget right? that back in the late 60s when OHIP was instituted in Ontario, fully, I think the number was 86% of Ontarians had adequate health coverage. Mm-hmm. And to cover that 14% who didn't, what did they do? They outlawed insurance for everybody. For everybody. Absolutely not. Just, just ridiculous. Now, coming up next, this is a conversation that was recorded on the 25th of October between Rush Limbaugh and Donald Trump, talking about the premium announcement, the 25% premium increase that Obamacare in the United States is anticipating next year. Very interesting conversation. Let's listen in. Mr. Trump, I want to make an observation and get your reactions. We have some, I think, devastating news for the American people today, and that's what's happening with health care premiums. This 25% is just an average. It's much higher than that. Mr. Trump, the people who have destroyed the health care system are also in line to destroy other aspects of our economy, the job market via immigration and amnesty. Right. And they're out there claiming their fingerprints are all over this. Yours are not. Mr. Trump, you don't have one thing to do with anything that's gone wrong in this country. 
country. They do. Obamacare is a disaster. And you remember, I, I called that from before it was approved. I said, this can't work. Because it's just the, the plan is no good. The concept is no good. Well, but the problem is it, it is working. It is working by design. The, the, the whole point of this is to have it fail like this so that they can then have people panic and ask the government to fix it. And the government will fix it by going single payer with the government totally running the health care system, which gives them so much power over people and their behavior and the way they live their lives. don't even want to think about it. And, well, and if, they, if they do that, Rush, they'll have an even worse situation that they have now. You know, if you look at even Canada... The people come down, they want an operation, they come to the United States to get the operation. You look at what's going on, uh, it, will, it is a disaster in terms of cost. And you know, the 25% rush is, is less than half of what the real number is. The real number in some of these places is 80% to 90% increases. It's, it's catastrophic, actually. It they, is. Put out that, they put out the phony number of 25%. Because twenty five percent sounds better than sixty or seventy percent. Well, you know the the former head of the Democrat National Committee, Debbie uh, Wasserman Schultz, is out there saying, "Oh no, it's been much worse. Bush was destroying the health care system, and Obamacare is all it's doing is keeping prices from going up more rapidly." I mean, you know, it's it's frustrating, Mr. Trump, because their fingerprints, as I say, are all over. If anybody, in my estimation, is disqualified from having anything further to do with this nation's economy or health care or immigration, it's a Democrat party. Millions of Americans will face big price hikes and fewer choices when Obamacare open enrollment begins. The government says the cost of mid-level health plans next year will increase by an average of 25%. That will hit consumers in 39 states. Major carriers are dropping out in some markets. About one in five consumers will be able to choose from only one provider. Government numbers show about two and a half million Americans not currently enrolled could be eligible for subsidies to offset cost increases. We need a f bigger understanding of yeah, why this is happening, sure you know, because the idea was not only to spread coverage around, mm -hmm. but that by spreading the coverage around, not only would it would help people get more yeah. preventative care, but then it would ultimately bring the cost down, and instead, the premiums are skyrocketing. And so the question is, what happened? Yeah, and who's pro who's profiting on this, or is the, is the way the law was set up failed? It's a really interesting story. So who's profiting? Well, the politicians, but not necessarily in direct cash payments, but through direct votes. Making it appear that you're giving the people something for nothing, or for very little, is always a vote-getter, especially among the left and progressive types. That was from CBS, the, the last one there, where they're all upset about what's happening next year with the expected premium increases. And they're talking about how it was all set up to create preventative care. That's the same thing that happened here in Canada. Preventive medicine is a con because what you, you don't want preventative care. You don't want health care. You've got to be careful to make sure that your system is offering sick care because what we have in Ontario is a lot of health care and no sick care. If you get sick, you're out of luck. But if you're still healthy, the, the system will look after you. And you'll find that the people who get the better health care are the people who aren't really sick. The people who have pregnancies, for example, births, things like that. We're doing great in those areas. There are no lineups because they know when someone's going to have a baby, right? You know, but, like, Bob, I go into the office, mm -hmm. 
And in the washrooms there, it's, um, there are signs on the wall from the Middlesex London Health Unit with a graphic on how to wash your hands. Oh, my goodness. And I have to wonder, how much money was spent on these silly signs? You know, it reminds me of that poster that was in Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand's novel, with the big date on it. Like, people are so stupid, they don't know what the date is, and they had to be told by a billboard. And so they have these hand-washing signs, and this is your preventative care, costing money that's not going to proper sick care. Yes, and most preventative care, by the way, in the, in the provincial budgets goes to things like advertising, constantly putting ads on the radio, telling you things like what you just said and, and other minor things that you can do. Make sure you get enough sleep, eat well, diet well. This by is all way, wonderful stuff, but you're still going to get sick. That's how the liberal press keep trying to um, uh, push the party line because they want the advertising dollars. That's your that payments. Might be a, that might be a, a, an incentive, but you think there'd be advertising dollars in private health care too. <laughs> yeah, but know? we don't have private no, health No, we're not allowed to have it. That's true. I would call them two great diseases that infect the world's healthcare systems relate to economic ignorance and political ignorance. Those are the two two diseases. We always hear in the healthcare issue that the profit motive is always so morally condemned. How could anyone make money off of the the, the sufferings of other people? And the completely there's a complete misunderstanding of the nature and function of prices and profits. And end of the law of supply and demand, it's treated as if it were made, you know, some made-up contrivance when, in economic terms, the law of supply and demand is the physics equivalent of the law of gravity. You cannot avoid it. These, you know, these are laws, gravity and, and, and supply and demand, to be discovered by man, not, not made up by man. They are unalterable, and the consequence of attempting to defeat both is pain, suffering, and death. The only economic system, grievously misnamed by Karl Marx, who was opposed to it, that coincides with these immutable laws has come to be known as capitalism. And politically, bankruptcy and unsustainable spending, debts and deficits, are morally praised in the name of altruism and taking care of others. But of course, the situation isn't helped by the so-called right wing, who's supposed to be clearing up the difference between public and private. This one from uh, the Free Press under the National Post by Tom Blackwell on September 12th. Case hints at true cost of private medicine. So here we have the attack on private medicine. This story concerned retired Hollywood stuntman Michael Roselli, who after an injury to his knees had taken advantage of a, quote, union-issued insurance paid for quick treatment for Brian Day at the orthopedic surgeon's celebrated private clinic. Now, reporter Tom Blackwell suggests that Roselli's story, quote, adds a novel twist to the heated debate over for-profit care, just as Day begins a landmark court challenge of Medicare rules. After reading about Day's legal crusade to, quote, free, free up access to privately paid medicine, Roselli decided to, to, help, to tell his story and said that Day, quote, took my insurance company's money and boom, he's gone, leaving the taxpayer-funded health care system to do all the cleanup, end quote. In fact, emergency physicians in B.C. say they often treat the, the complications like surgical wounds that have opened or infections of work done in private day clinics, typically because no one's available at the facility after hours. Meanwhile, Camby, which is Day's clinic, would itself like to provide more comprehensive care, but get this, government rules bar private clinics from keeping patients longer than 24 hours, end quote. 
This is not private health care. Just the fact that someone owns a clinic privately, but the government controls it. There's a name for that. It's called fascism. That's what's happening in the U.S. right now, and their fascist system is going to be falling into socialism. Rush Limbaugh hinted at it when he, when he thought that they, that they designed it to fail on purpose. And it's not on purpose. That's just a natural consequence of setting something up that way and the natural thing that happens. It happens everywhere. We're on a single-payer system because everything before it didn't work, except for the private health care we had before they even started the whole thing. The state monopoly prohibits competition with it in so many ways, people no longer can see the forest for the trees. I just heard a funny news story on one of the local AM news shows here in the city in referring to the expected uh, gas price hike that should be hitting today as a result of that pipeline explosion in the U.S. You heard about that? Yeah, four cents a liter yeah. they're predicting to go up. Well, the reporter reported that Canada's four to five cent per liter price hike was a protectionist move to keep Americans from being interested in Canada's gas supply, right? Well, isn't the St. John refinery uh, also shut down for their regular oh, yeah. maintenance, well, that's, of restricting supply? So, of course, prices are going well, to go up. Well, of course, and it's not protectionism. No, that actually protects the system, if you think about it. Exactly. It's the law of supply and demand. I've said this many times. Look, at prices regulate both. It is true that, in a sense, when sellers raise their prices during periods of low supply, that they are, quote-unquote, protecting their inventories. But that's not protectionism. That's rational and necessary. They're protecting their supply so they won't run out. That's right. And that's the whole process of it. You know, better to have high prices than no supply, because that would be your choice. Protectionism, on the other hand, is a political thing, an artificially forced increase in prices, like usually via tariffs, taxes, whatever else, but usually something unfair that unlevels the playing field. So how can we, we ultimately get the price of reliable health care down to being affordable? Well, there's some basic things. We, we could spend days on this, but the basic issues are, first, you have to free up the medical market. Allow the market to be flooded with a supply of doctors, nurses, and other practitioners. Quit giving them monopolies, protections, and all that from, from competition. Competition will drive prices down. Choices will drive costs down. But those are merely economic arguments and responses. Remember, Obamacare is more fascist than socialist or communist, but like Ontario's health care system, will eventually end up as the latter, communist, because of the relative political popularity between the two state-controlled systems. Long, painful wait slammed from the October 11th London Free Press by Jonathan Scher. And the subheading reads, It should take minutes, not months, to assess spine clinic referrals, a U.S. surgeon insists. And I quote, with degenerative changes to his spine that leave him barely able to walk and in, and in excruciating pain, a 79-year-old Huron County man has waited months for surgeons in London to decide if they'll even see him. His diswrought wife knew it would be a fruit, fruitless to phone the spine center at London Health Sciences Center and ask when a decision would be made because until last week, those who phoned the center were greeted with a pre-recorded message whose essence was this, we're too busy to return calls. Quote, we receive over 400 referrals per month, end quote. A tape voice message said when patients phone the clinic, we do not accept phone call inquiring about referral status, end quote. That message was replaced with a less offensive one after the free press asked questions of the Spine Center and LHSC. The new message says patients can ask their referring physicians to phone on their behalf. Hey, but it's free. <laughs> <laughs> right? So Americans... 
That's what you're heading in for if you don't listen, at least to Donald Trump, whether you vote for him or not, is another issue. Now, Donald Trump pretty much has it just right with what I heard him say about his own alternative to Obamacare, both during the three presidential debates and in the following exchange, again on October 25th with Rush Limbaugh. What needs to change in Obamacare? When you say you're going to repeal and replace it, what are you going to do instead of Obamacare? How are you going to get prices down? That's what matters. How are you going to bring prices down? It's such a great, it's such a great question, and there are frankly so many answers. There are so many savings banks. You know, you look at the savings health insurance. There's so many great ways you can do that. You'll get great plans at much less money, at much less money. I mean, these people are being just killed, and you know the 25 percent was put out by Washington because the real number could be three times that amount. I mean, it's, a, it's catastrophic what's going on. I left small businesses a little while ago, and they were all complaining that Obamacare is putting them out of business. Not only the regulations, which are a disaster, and the taxes, but Obamacare is putting them out of business. So you have, the, uh, you have that concept, the, the savings account and, and health care. What you really have are ways of getting people energized by taking you have to take down the lines between the safe rush so you have competition right now there's no competition none and the insurance companies love that because they'd rather have one state than have to compete in 50 states but you have to break down the barriers break down the line so there's competition and once that happens they will see their costs drop and they will see plans that nobody's even thought of before It'll be so beautiful. Right, because right now the insurance companies are for- forbidden by law in competing state to state. They have to stay within st- states, so people right. in certain states are subject to very little competition, which means they have no hope of well, having... The concept re- rush of health care savings accounts and, and, you know, other concepts off of that. But, you know, I'm totally serious. You will have plans that nobody's even talking about now because it'll get more and more competitive, more and more ideas will come out, and the costs will drop so incredibly. It'll be a, an, an incredible thing to watch. We are absolutely being killed. Keep, businesses are closing. I think, I think Obamacare is, is now taken over almost from regulation, which is ridiculous what's happening with overregulation, as the biggest single problem to opening and keeping businesses going. Because I know a lot of people in Michigan that are planning to vote for Trump, and um, they're not, they don't necessarily like him that much, and they don't necessarily agree with him. You live here in Ohio, you know what I'm talking about. Whether Trump means it or not is kind of irrelevant because he's saying the things to people who are hurting. Trump's election is going to be the biggest fuck you ever recorded in human history. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all of our financial supporters who've made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support and sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, which are all archived for your listening pleasure. Well, Bob, next week... The Americans decide who's the president of the United States to replace Obama, perhaps the worst president in the history of that country. So what are we going to talk about after that? I don't know, actually. (laughs)
<laughs> television shows. Yeah, okay. Let's get back to normal life, I guess, after this. The most entertaining of elections that I have ever seen in the United States. Now, recently, of course, Obama, I mean, sorry, not Obama, but Trump, <laughs> um, gave his first 100-day action plan delivered in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And I'm going to go through it point by point to give my opinion on each point. But after I first talk about Michael Moore, now you just heard Michael Moore. That was a little clip from his latest um, nonsense called Don, uh, My- Michael Moore in Trumpland. Now, Michael Moore, he's responsible for such factually inaccurate cinema screeds as Bowling for Columbine, which attacked the right to self-defense, Sicko, which attacked the businesses responsible for saving millions of lives with their drugs, and Capitalism, a love story which inaccurately blamed the financial crisis of the late 2000s on capitalism rather than cronyism. Now, he's come out and he said that he believes Donald Trump will win the race for the president next week. And he's given five reasons for his predictions, and I took these from his own website. Now, I realize that Moore is a person of no great intellect. (laughs) His ideas are off-the-shelf Marxist-Leninists. He is promoting the destruction of everything that is good about America and trying to turn it into some communist dictatorship with a powerful crony, that being Hillary Clinton, at the top. But the value in analyzing why such a sinister person would suggest that his political nemesis would actually win on the 8th is that it might give us some insight into the inner workings, such as they are, of the mind of a typical leftist. Now, Moore calls Trump a wretched, ignorant, dangerous part-time clown and full-time sociopath. You know, funny that these are the exact epithets I would ascribe to Michael Moore. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, was he looking in the mirror when he was writing that? You know, it's typical of the left that they use a lot of profanity and a lot of name-calling and ad hominems. And Isn't that amazing how consistent that is? We have to go, whenever we play something from the left, we always have to edit it out for the swearing because they are just such lowbrow people. Not your average person on the street, mind you, but the people who purport to represent the left, like Michael Moore. Now, he thinks Trump will win for these five reasons. First, something he calls the Midwest math. Trump supports the workers of Michigan, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and his protectionist policies will, according to Moore, be beneficial to the blue-collar voter, and so therefore they will vote for him. Well, first of all, Protectionism never benefits anyone, except perhaps for a few businessmen who might benefit, at least temporarily, from a lack of foreign competition. I'll have more to say on Trump's protectionist policies when I analyze his first 100 days doctrine later on. Second, the last stand of the angry white man. Now, thinking like a typical leftist, Moore thinks gender and color are valid reasons people will vote for Trump. They see a woman poised to be the next president, so more sexist that he is, thinks that men will automatically vote for a man. Putting words in the mouths of every man in the country, he says, quote, We're supposed to sit back and take eight years of a woman bossing us around. After that, it'll be eight years of the gays in the White House. Have- then the transgenders. You can see where this is going. By then, animals will have granted human rights, and a effing hamster is going to be running the country. This has to stop, unquote. <laughs> I have never heard <laughs> of anyone even thinking like that, except for... 
guys like him. You took the words right out of my Never, mouth. ever have uh, I ever run into that. Ever, ever, I ever, ever. I don't know who Michael what, Moore what hangs around with, what kind of schoolyard yeah. friends he has or had or who might he might be talking to. But in my We all lifetime, hated Margaret Thatcher so much, didn't oh, we? Because yeah, sure. we're angry white men <laughs> and we just hated her guts. <laughs> in my lifetime, I've never met a man who would say such things. I'm not suggesting that such a, a um, Neanderthalic man might exist, but if he does, he is an anomaly known personally to Michael Moore. I would venture to say that the average male has no qualms at all about voting for a female president. One only has to look at the strong female leadership, as you said, Bob, of Margaret Thatcher or a Golda Meir to realize that a woman is fully capable of leading a country. The thing is that Hillary Clinton is not such a woman. Not because she's a, a woman, but because she is a collectivist and is in it for the money and will sell the United States to the highest bidder. Moore's offensive language and portrayal of the white man as homophobic, sexist, bigot, is a caricature straight out of all in the family. It is the stereotypical race and gender baiting of a leftist who's trying to tell us that a great majority of people actually believe this way, even though he later recognizes that the left have won the culture war and that most people accept gay marriage and equality of women. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth, trying to make an ar- two arguments with both arguments contradicting each other. Yet another example of the irrationality of the left, a way of thinking which Michael Moore epitomizes. That's why I have to listen to this guy. I wouldn't suggest anybody go out and buy his, movie, his <laughs> movies or, or sit and watch him, but as an analysis, well, as a political analysis, I watch this stuff. If you want to know what is not so, get his stuff. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Now, the third reason Trump will win, according to Moore, in a segment which Moore calls the Hillary problem, he claims that because of Hillary's support for the Iraq war, he has promised never to vote for her, but he will break that promise this time rather than have Trump, which he calls a proto-fascist, whatever that is, from becoming the commander-in-chief. He acknowledges that Clinton will get the U.S. involved in a war, but is afraid that Trump's, quote, psycho finger will be on the button, unquote, if he's elected, and by that, I guess he means that Trump is more likely to start a nuclear war, while Hillary is more likely to, to involve the U.S. in a protracted non-nuclear war. What evidence he has, I don't know. At no time does he offer us one piece of evidence as to why he believes Trump will start a nuclear war. Nothing. He just feels it, I guess. Trump, our author of The Art of the Deal, a book on how to negotiate, is more likely to destroy the world than Clinton, who, in her tenure as Secretary of State, involved the United States in several war fronts, diminishing the stature of the United States in the eyes of its enemies, and aided and abetted the formation and growth of ISIS. Donald Trump is a businessman who has never seen military service and who has put forward a foreign policy more isolationist than hawkish. Moore actually calls Hillary a hawk, believe it or not, but considers Trump to be more of a danger to peace. How contradictory. Moore doesn't know what he's talking about and is trying to frighten the American voter without providing any evidence for his argument. Typical leftist. Number four reason Trump will win, according to Moore, the depressed Sanders vote. Now, Moore identifies as a Sanders supporter who will reluctantly vote for Hillary. Quote, stop fretting about Bernie supporters not voting for Hillary. We're voting for Clinton, unquote. The problem, as Moore sees it, is that these depressed voters will do little to drum up support for Clinton, which can only aid Trump, therefore he will win. And it's probably correct, actually. Clinton stole the nomination from Sanders by her 
and the DNC rigging the nomination process, yet this Sanders supporter, Moore, will reward her skullduggery with his vote? Now, the last reason that Moore thinks that Trump will win is what he calls the Jesse Ventura effect. Moore says that millions of Americans will vote for Trump simply because they can. They may not agree with him, but they'll vote for him because it will upset the apple cart and make mommy and daddy mad. <laughs> they get a vote that makes them equal with the rich guy and all that stuff. I yeah. frankly don't know, don't know where Moore gets his understanding of the American voter or of the mind or psychology of these fellow humans in general. It must be from the back of a cereal box because he thinks people like to vote to upset the apple cart, just like they, in his words, ponder what it would be like to jump off of the top of Niagara Falls. What a crazed mind. It is my belief that people treat their vote for president with a high degree of gravitas. It's important to them. And yes, while some do not make up their mind until it's time to actually make their mark next to the name of their candidate, of their choice, I don't believe they practice some sort of malicious mischief when voting as Moore suggests. What I do take away from Moore's reasons were his predictions that Trump will win. Moore is a typical leftist. He's a sexist and a racist. He's a man who would rather see a country in poverty than to support business. Moore has a very warped and degraded sense of life. He considers his fellow man to be an ignorant, depressed, depraved, and mischievous lout. Moore is a sad individual who does not necessarily epitomize his fellow American, Democrat nor Republican. He epitomizes what passes for the intellectual elite of the left. He is a case study of the kind of man who hates people and hates life on this earth. As an example of the power structure I'm fighting, AT&T is buying Time Warner and thus CNN, a deal we will not approve in my administration because it's too much concentration of power in the hands of too few. Likewise, Amazon, which through its ownership controls the Washington Post, should be paying massive taxes, but it's not paying. And it's a very unfair playing field. And you see what that's happening and what that's doing to department stores all over the country. Very, very unfair. And you're talking about billions and billions of dollars that they should be paying those taxes. Additionally, Comcast's purchase of NBC concentrates far too much power in one massive entity that is trying to tell the voters what to think and what to do. Deals like this destroy democracy. And we'll look at breaking that deal up and other deals like that. This should never, ever have been approved in the first place. What follows is my 100-day action plan to make America great again. On the first day of my term, of office. My administration will immediately pursue the following six measures to clean up the corruption and special interest collusion in Washington. First, a constitutional amendment to impose term limits on all 
members of Congress. Second, a hiring freeze on all federal employees to reduce federal workforce through attrition, exempting military, public safety, and public health. Third, a requirement that for every new federal regulation, two existing regulations must be eliminated. Regulations are killing our country and our jobs. Fourth, a five-year ban on White House and congressional officials becoming lobbyists after they leave government service, making a fortune. Fifth, a lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. Very bad. Sixth, a complete ban on foreign lobbyists raising money for American elections. That's what's happening. On the same day, I will begin taking strongly seven actions to protect American workers. First, I will announce my intention to totally renegotiate NAFTA or withdraw from the deal under Article 2205. Second, I will announce our withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Third, I will direct my Secretary of the Treasury to labor China a currency manipulator. China is a currency manipulator. I will direct the Secretary of Commerce and U.S. Trade Representative to identify all foreign trading abuses that unfairly impact American workers and direct them to use every tool under American and international law to end those abuses immediately. I will lift the restrictions on the production of $50 trillion worth of job-producing American energy reserves, including, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. And we will put our miners back to work. Sixth, I will lift the Obama-Clinton roadblocks that allow for this vital energy infrastructure projects to go forward. We're going to allow the Keystone Pipeline and so many other things to move forward. Tremendous numbers of jobs and good for our country. We're going to cancel billions in payments to the United Nations climate change programs and use the money to fix America's water and environmental infrastructure. Additionally, on the first day, I will take the following five actions to restore security and constitutional rule of law. We have to do that. Cancel every unconstitutional executive action, memorandum, and order issued by President Obama. On October 22nd, Donald Trump delivered his first 100 days in office, or as I like to call it, his first five score days in office speech in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. There are some things in it which I'd agree with and some that I would not, like any politician, I guess you could say. He sounded more like a deal breaker than a deal maker mm. in one of his comments there. Yeah, yeah. One of the uh, from one of the clips, uh, one of the clips there, he, he was talking about the... Uh, 
um, breaking up AT&T's attempt to, yes, uh, to buy. large companies and, yeah. and, and ownership, Merger concentration and of ownership. Where have we heard that before? I've heard that in Canada before. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll get into that a little later. Sure. Now, on previous episodes of the show, I have said that given the alternatives, if I were an American, and I'm not, remember folks, I'm Canadian, I'd support Trump. I still would. But that does not indicate complete approval of the man or his policies. Trump listed six measures to clean up the corruption and special interest collusion in Washington. You just heard him on the clip. The first one, of course, was a proposed amendment to the Constitution to impose term limits on Congress. Now, while in the past, I would not have supported such a limit since it places an arbitrary limit on the options of the voter. Given the history of corruption, however, in the United States government and the way bills can be polluted and diluted through pork barreling, I would support such a measure, just given the human nature of politics today. I think it works for the office of the president, and I think it would work for Congress and the Senate as well, or the House and the Senate. Maybe it was Jesse Ventura who convinced me when he made the remark that a leader has made a life in the private sector. He stands for elected office to serve for a time, And then he returns to his life in the private sector. You know, anyone who was a career politician more often than not seems to remain only to feather their nest. That seems to be the the nature of it. Not everybody, of course, but I would say the majority of them. Power does not necessarily have to corrupt, but it sure seems to in most cases. Trump would reduce the federal workforce through attrition. Okay, I'd support this, but if he had said that he would eliminate certain departments which should not perform functions necessary for a proper government, such as the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, or the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, which has an annual budget, by the way, of $32 billion, then it would have been a stronger measure, I think. But the attrition thing, I think, is a a safe way for him to say that he will cut um, government. Trump would require that for every new regulation that two existing regulations must be eliminated. Now, this seems to me to be perfectly arbitrary. Why two? Why not three? Why not say that he'll not approve any new regulations at all? I know that we certainly don't need them, or the Americans don't need them. He proposes a five-year ban on White House and congressional officials becoming lobbyists after leaving office. Now, I would agree, but I would suggest that the entire notion of lobbying be examined. Sometimes lobbying is simply what one would normally call meeting with a constituent. Sometimes it's not as nefarious as you might think. Sometimes, though, it's pure cronyism, where people are paid to influence, uh, for influence read bribe, a legislator. So I don't know that a blanket law regarding lobbying is a necessarily wise action. I think it has to be looked at. Now, he wants a lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. And this struck me as a little surprise. Now, why would any American lobby on behalf of a foreign government unless they were... That that sounds to me to be totally un-American. Shouldn't he renounce his citizenship to act on behalf of a foreign government? No, I'd support Trump's proposal on this. Trump would ban foreign lobbyists from raising money for American elections. Mm, I don't know that I could support that. The corruption is not that a candidate receives money from a foreign government. It's that a candidate would accept such a payment in return for favors is the problem. The candidate, if elected, should be exposed as an agent of a foreign power if he or she did such a thing. In other words, return a favor. 
Well, of course, that's probably the only reason a foreign government would give the money in the first place is for a favor or a concession of some in sort. In today's society and world, yes. I'm thinking more of, um, for example, right now, I'd love to donate to Trump. Yeah, well, that's that's my point. Sometimes it's or perfectly Cruz. legitimate to, to do. Maybe you're supporting giving money to that candidate because you already support what they are doing. Yes. And you want to make sure they have some level of success. Yes. Not that you're influencing them unduly. So that's right. Sometimes it's, it's not just the right thing to do. That's right. Yeah. Now, the very fact that Hillary Clinton and her campaign has accepted millions from foreign dictators should have been picked up on by an honest media as a reason for voters to reject her as being suitable to be president. The problem is there's no honest media left in the United States. Trump's measures to protect American workers, as he puts it, amounts to nothing but protectionist policies which would harm not only workers, but consumers and producers alike. Nobody benefits from protectionism. He would withdraw from NAFTA and the TPP, and he would label China a currency manipulator. Why not just end the Fed? I disagree with his protectionist policies, but realize that they will garner him great support. I understand why he's making the moves he is doing. It's also very dubious whether he would follow through on them because <laughs> so many past presidential can- candidates of all parties have made similar promises. I hope he breaks this particular yeah. <laughs> promise of protectionism. I really do. Now, here's a good one, though, that I support. Trump will lift restrictions on American energy reserves oh, and remove the roadblock to the Keystone Pipeline, a Canadian venture, by the way. To, say, to this, I say, yay, fantastic. This one measure will benefit America and Canada with cheaper energy, more employment, good employment, a stronger economy, and less reliance on energy sources from countries which suffer under brutal dictatorial regimes like Saudi Arabia. I fully support Trump's measure to restore security to the United States, and they are canceling every unconstitutional executive action memorandum and order issued by President Obama. Now, that's something that most incoming presidents, prime ministers, parties, whatever, fail to do. They usually deal or work with the cards that they're with dealt. what they're dealt, yeah. Yeah, from the previous administration. It would require an um, immense amount of fortitude on Trump's behalf to do that, but I, I hope he does. Beginning the process of selecting a replacement for Justice Scalia for, uh, one of the tr- from one of the 20 judges on his list who will uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States, I think that Trump will, would make a good choice when it comes to replacing Scalia on the, uh, on the Supreme Court. Now, he'll also cancel all federal funding to sanctuary cities. Uh, Way to go. I think that's beautiful. I support completely removing more than 2 million criminal illegal immigrants from the country and canceling visas to foreign countries that won't take them back. I support that. Now, remember, he's not against immigration. He's against illegal immigrants, people whose first act when they come to the States is to break the law. Deporting 2 million people, though. Remember, he's saying that he will begin the process. Uh, Okay, he may not complete it. Well, most of them will end up staying. Yes, I think so, too. (laughs) But he, he, again, he is pandering for the vote, and I think it's a step in the right direction, and people will be vetted more closely when they come in, and I think it's, I support it. Um, It's probably not practical, but um, we'll see. He will suspend immigration from terror-prone regimes or regions, rather, where vetting cannot safely occur. All vetting of people coming into the country will be considered extreme vetting. Now, mind you, do you see how his his wording has changed here from don't letting any in any Muslims 
to being a little more specific, saying we shouldn't let people in from particular countries, which is what you can prove. You can't prove whether someone is a Muslim or not, but you can certainly prove their country of birth and their country of well, origin. Well, yes, and he has said that from the beginning, by the way. He just didn't emphasize it each time he repeated it. Yes. Yeah. Now, this last measure, uh, by the way, that measure is the most important of all Trump's policies and is the prime reason, the prime reason I would support his presidency. Now, Trump's policies on tax relief are laudable and I'll and, and will prove to be effective in stimulating growth in a proper way rather than borrowing money or printing money. It would be better, however, if he outlined a plan to reduce government spending rather than plans to reduce government revenue. Even though if the tax measures end up increasing revenue, it's far better measure in the long term to reduce expenditures. Trump's plan to establish tariffs on companies which choose to relocate to other countries is on the whole anti-business, and I don't support it. His proposed policy to redirect education dollars to give parents the right to send their children to the school of their choice. I wholeheartedly support, and it actually mirrors the Freedom Party of Ontario's policy on education, directing your tax dollars to the school of your choice, public or private. I support his proposal to end Common Core, but his plan to make two- and four-year college more affordable, I don't support. The government should get out of making it easier for people to attend college, especially given the state of American colleges these days, which are cesspools of the left. I'm happy to see that he will repeal Obamacare, and um, I'm glad to see that his um, solutions are more free market solutions uh, by way of replacing Obamacare. His plan to build a wall along the southern border. border. I believe this is pure nonsense. I really do. What is needed is a way to make sure criminals do not return, a measure he is proposing, by the way, and he should actually make it easier for any, for many people to enter the country, not harder. Just keep the criminals out. And if they come in, then yes, incarcerate them. And I think he's heading in the right direction then. Support the law. But building a wall? Oh, I just can't believe it. That's just nonsense. Yeah, and he's, he's all ta- also, also talking about this drug war thing, which is a bit concerning. Nixon got into that, and it, yeah. it put the U.S. in a terrible situation. Well, I hope he doesn't go down that road of um, perpetuating the war on drugs. Yeah. That was such a I don't know if that's his key lost. point or just mm-hmm. one of the incidentals. <laughs> You know, finally, I support Trump's plan to rebuild the military. I think in these in these days, especially with people like Putin over there annexing uh, the Crimea and ISIS, um, I think you really need to have a strong military. As a matter of fact, you always have to have a strong military, regardless of the state of the of the world at any given time. You always have to be prepared. Donald J. Trump is by no means an ideal candidate for president, but I believe that given the alternative, he's the best candidate they've got. Well, the U.S. November 8th election will be all over by this time next week. Unless, of course, Donald Trump objects. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, I think he has every right to. He, he if might. every wins, I think he should object. He might. And that's when you are all once again invited to join us on our continuing journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be, stay, do, act, and think right. And be right back here. Or otherwise, you might be left just winging it. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And even tonight, with all of the heated back and forth between my opponent and me at the debate last night, we have proven that we can actually be civil to each other, 
In fact, just before taking the dais, Hillary accidentally bumped into me, and she very civilly said, pardon me.